The passage we're going to look at this morning it comes from the fourth chapter of Romans, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read it aloud. You could follow in your bulletins or you could follow in your own Bibles. Either one would be fine. And then after that, we're going to read together this congregational reading. We are memorizing Scripture together, and this is the passage we are now memorizing together from Romans 5. So let me ask you, if you're able to please stand. As I read aloud, this is the word of God from Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And now would you read with me Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Please be seated. And join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself to us. And we pray that as we look together at this passage in the midst of this epistle to the Romans, we pray that you would give us understanding, Lord God. That you would open the eyes of our heart. That you would give us ears to hear. And Lord God, that you would be glorified as you sanctify your people. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and pray this morning that this would all be uh, for your glory and for his renown. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. I have to tell you uh, this morning as we think about the passage and about uh, baptism, we had the privilege of, of baptizing three covenant children in our congregation this morning. Let me make sure everybody can see this. I think pretty well. We'll see had the privilege of baptizing uh, three covenant children in our congregation. And every time that we baptize children in our church, I have to say I have a strong mix of emotions, okay? On the one hand, uh, baptizing covenant children is really a, a celebratory thing. We see the faith of their parents, the presentation of these children, the gift of God. Uh, we see the parents take vows, the congregation. It's just a, a wonderful time to celebrate. But I have to tell you, I always kind of hold it in tension with a practical reality, and it's, it's this reality. 
uh, that there are plenty of people in our congregation who are not only opposed to baptizing children, but who are actually offended by it, uh, often uh, for some cases uh, deeply offended by it. And so I, th- I think one of the practical realities that I, I realize is that every year we have people who actually will, will leave our church uh, because they're so distraught at the idea that we baptize children. Now, this morning, you may be one of those people. I know there, there are plenty of you here. And you may have been watching uh, us baptize these th- three children and been thinking, well, isn't it good enough that they would baptize one child, but they're going to baptize three? You know, how dare them? Um, and you may be to the point where you have kind of already tuned out everything else I'm going to say, okay? You have been so offended by what you've just seen that now the rest of the service is just a blur, okay? It's going to be totally forgotten. And here's my plea to you this morning. Will you give me the opportunity to share with you this morning from Romans chapter 4 what the Word of God says about sacraments, their function and role in the church, and what is their design? You see, because The job of the pastor is interesting. When we baptize children, we rarely have the opportunity to spend a half an hour explaining the function of the sacrament. We get the opportunity, like Tony had this morning, to try and rush in five or six minutes what you should take hours and hours discussing. That is the function and role of the sacraments in the life of the church. Beautiful opportunity this morning, okay, to not only see a baptism, but to have Paul introduce and talk about this idea of circumcision, and we can use that this morning as a springboard to discuss the function of the sacraments in the church, okay? So here we go. That's what we're doing this morning. I hope you'll be able to hear me as we work through the text. First point, here's the first thing we're going to talk about. We're going to begin where Paul begins, and that would be with circumcision, Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is circumcision this morning. That will lead into a conversation of the broader application of sacraments, but we're going to start with circumcision. I've I've drawn a picture for you. This is my picture of Abraham, and uh, again, I'm a, a visual learner, so if I can draw a picture, it will help me to remember the things that we're talking about. So Paul introduces in verse 9 this morning circumcision. He transitions to a a conversation about the subject of circumcision. But to understand circumcision, we have to go all the way back to Genesis, right? And the first occurrence of the word circumcision actually happens in Genesis chapter 17. Okay, so you could write that down this morning. Genesis 17 is where we're first introduced to the subject of circumcision. Genesis 17 verse 10 But to understand what's happening with Abraham in Genesis 17, we have to rewind even a little bit further, at least to Genesis 15. We talked about Genesis 15 last week and the week before. Again, let me summarize. From Genesis 12 through 14, we see God come to Abraham, Abram at the time. He calls him out of his land and he says, Abram, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. At least twice from Genesis 13 through 15, God uses this phrase. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram. In chapter 15, two very important things happen. First of all, verse 6 says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, Paul's been pulling on that passage a lot. And then in 15 later, God initiates or inaugurates this covenant with Abram by causing a deep sleep to fall on Abram. He splits the animals in half, and then he essentially goes down between those, uh, uh, the 
the bloody animals and initiates this covenant with Abram, okay? So fast forward to chapter 17. It's very interesting. That's in chapter 15. Um, most historians, and definitely this is the teaching of the rabbis, they agree that a lot of time passes between 15 and 17. As a matter of fact, the rabbis in Jesus' day, they taught that 29 years, to be exact, 29 years passes between Genesis 15 and 17. If you pay attention to that, you'll see that's really going to lend itself to Paul's argument this morning. All right, but we fast forward to Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God um, reiterates the covenant that he's made with Abram, and he says three very important things about the covenant. Okay, first thing, it is initiated by God. Okay, not so much the thing that God says, but it's obvious that God makes it clear in, in chapter 17 that this is his covenant with Abram, right? Not Abram's covenant with God. All right, let's make that very clear. God has initiated an agreement with the man Abram, and it is he who has done that and not Abram himself. Second thing that's clear uh, from 17 and 15 is that this is an everlasting covenant, okay? Everlasting. We don't have to guess at that or imply it because it is made explicitly clear in chapter 17. God says, Abram, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, okay? An everlasting covenant. The third thing that is mentioned in chapter 17, he says, this is for you and for your offspring, okay? Now, if you can't read it, those are the three words I've just written. It is for you and your offspring, and that, that phrase in chapter 17 is be really important because as we go through the book of Romans, Paul is going to say to the Jews, you have totally misunderstood what God meant by that, Okay? You thought that, that God meant the biological children of Abram when, in fact, what God meant was the spiritual offspring of Abram. So Paul will go on. We're going to see this later in Romans. He will go on to talk about us who are the spiritual children of Abraham. He will see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in chapters 15, 16, and 17 of Genesis. He will see that being fulfilled among us, okay? So we the spiritual offspring of Abram. It's interesting because it's a Hebrew word. The word is zema. It's the word that means a seed, okay? So it means a seed that's planted in the ground. You are the spiritual seed of Abraham. You have been planted in the ground. You have blossomed into the, the beautiful heritage of Abraham. That's why, just for instance, this morning in verse 12, as Paul is speaking about Abraham, he, he says he, this was to make him the father, to make him the father of who? Uh, the people who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So you see Paul is beginning to uh, redefine, not in a new way, but in a way that was very foreign to the Jews, redefine who are the offspring, the children, the heritage of Abraham. Here's what happens in chapter 17. After the covenant has been reiterated uh, re, uh, to Abraham, in chapter 17, verse 10, God says this to Abraham. As a sign of my covenant with you, I give you this. And he then introduces circumcision, okay? And he says to Abram, all right, not only have I initiated this covenant with you, Abram, but the sign that I give you of the covenant that I've made with you is for you and your household. That's my house, Okay? You draw whatever picture you want, helps you to understand the sign given in 1710 for Abraham and his household, okay? 
Now, there's a number of things that are really unclear at this point. You read Genesis 17, and you're kind of like, why did God pick this particular sign, right? Of all the signs he could have chosen. He could have said, Abraham, make a pile of stones, as he often does, or a sign from heaven, right? Fire or, or wind. He could have uh, written it on a billboard. He could have said, hang it around your neck, like he does in Deuteronomy 6. But he says, here's a sign. It's a physical sign. Uh, and not only why does he give him this sign, but why is it for Abram and his household? Why at this moment? And what is it to signify? All those things relatively unclear in Genesis 17. Yet we know God gives Abram the sign. All right? Now, as I, I said just a moment ago, you should be asking a number of questions at this point. Like, what is going on? Why is this the case? How is this meant to function? What is the benefit of this? Why has God done this and not that? Really, really good questions, okay? But here's one of the, the words of warning that I'd like to give you before we move forward. And it, and it goes very simply like this, okay? Many of us come from church backgrounds that would diminish, discount, or neglect the things that happen in the Old Testament, okay? Many of us come from church backgrounds like that. So it might be your natural inclination to look at the sign that God gives Abraham and to say, okay, whatever, that's circumcision. That's an Old Testament thing, okay? I don't really need to know about that because that's from the time when, you know, fill in the blank, when people were justified by works, right? That's a common misconception. When uh, it was not by grace, but by effort. When they were just doing Jewish things, okay? I don't know, you know, fill in the blank. These are the things that I often hear people say, but let me encourage you. Any type of view that discounts the things happening in the Old Testament, like the sacraments that we see administered in the Old Testament, doesn't fully understand what Paul has been building all the way through to this epistle in the, uh, to the Romans, right? Because what we've heard from the very beginning is Paul has been saying to his audience, listen, Abraham wasn't the wasn't different at all. He was the same. Abraham believed by faith. God counted it to him as righteousness, just as you believe by faith, just as it is counted to you as righteousness. The argument that Paul has been building is that really not much has changed at all. As a matter of fact, it's been very much the same for Abraham and for you. Same God, same sin, same people, same gift of faith, same righteousness counted to you, same sanctification, same glorification. There's a whole lot of the same things between you and Abraham. That's an argument that the Apostle Paul has been building. Let me tell you, as a matter of fact, there's only one major difference between you and Abraham, and that's this. Abraham was looking forward to Jesus, and you know what? He really couldn't see much of what God was going to do through his son. It was kind of like looking from afar. I don't know what's gonna, what God's going to do, but I can kind of see it in the distance. And then we kind of stand on this side of it, and we look back at the cross, and we see very clearly what God was going to do through his son Jesus. But as a, a conversation about the means and the mode by which we receive these things, all very much the same from the old to the new. It is one covenant of grace where God has always been working on our behalf to do what we cannot do for ourselves, Okay. So when we look at the sacraments in the Old Testament, to immediately discount them and say, well, that's just part of the old, is to neglect the argument that Paul has been building all along the way, okay? So then we see the passage this morning, Romans chapter 4, 9 through 12. Paul is having a conversation about circumcision. Really, this is the question that he's asking, okay? 
I'm going to do something fun with these, I hope. I hope it'll be kind of a visual illustration of what Paul's doing. But he's asking this question. What is the relationship between faith, the sacrament, and justification? All right? What's the relationship between faith, circumcision, in this case in chapter 4, and justification? Okay? Some people may say that the sacrament is the thing that produces the justification, okay? So they would say that the sacrament, the sign, the administration of the sign is the thing that justifies us before God, all right? Paul will say that's not how this works, okay? That's not how the sacrament works. Now, let me say something. We, we may, as we sit here and we read uh, Romans chapter 4, we may say, yeah, that's what the Jews believe. They believe that the sacrament is the thing that justifies them before God, and then faith maybe kind of sits out here, somewhere out here. Maybe it's after justification. Maybe it has no role. But we might be inclined to think this is the, the Jewish view that Paul is trying to speak against. And let me tell you that if we're going to be uh, honest with the Jewish perspective that Paul's engaging at this moment, let me tell you that's not exactly what the Jews believed, Okay. This is not really what the Jews believe. You, you may have thought that, but it's not really what they believed. As a matter of fact, this is what they believe, okay? Essentially, they believe that faith, our faith, leads to our works, included in that is administering a, the sacrament, and the administration of the sacrament and our works leads to our justification, okay? So you, if you go up to a, a Jewish person in Paul's day or even today, and you would say, you believe only in works. They'd say, no, 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 of course not. We believe we must have faith in God, but our faith leads to our works, which ultimately leads to God justifying us, okay? So uh, essentially, you see this, for instance, at the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1 uh, of Acts says this, uh, but some men came down from Judea. They were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see what they were saying they were not saying, only if you're circumcised can you be saved. That's the only thing necessary. They were saying, without it, you cannot be saved, okay? So essentially, that it is part of the equation for being saved. You must be circumcised as part of the equation if you're to be saved. If you were to ask a Jewish person, they would say this. In Genesis 15, Abraham had faith. In Genesis 17, he administers the sacrament of circumcision, and therefore, God justifies him, okay? So one leads to the other, leads to the other, okay? So that essentially is the view that Paul is engaging with. And Paul is going to say this, okay? He is going to say, faith leads to justification, and our justification leads to to our works, okay? And that's how he's going to talk about the sacrament this morning. L look essentially what he says in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? How was righteousness counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, okay? You see, it's a very logical argument that the Apostle Paul makes, isn't it? Was Abraham justified, counted righteous before God, was he counted righteous before he was circumcised or after? 
And as I said earlier, the chronology of 15 and 17 is really helpful in that case. Paul's saying, listen, 29 years passed, okay? In Genesis 15, Abraham was counted as righteous, and 29 years later, he was circumcised. Do you think for a second that for 29 years, he was not righteous before God? Of course not, right? And if, the, if these things happen like two weeks after the other, we might say, okay, like there's a quick succession there. But 29 years that passes between 15 and 17, okay? And it's really interesting in the Greek, there in, in uh, verse 10, there's no... Uh, chronology words like come out in the English. So it doesn't say before or after. What it literally says is, uh, how, how then was Abraham's righteousness counted? Was it counted in uncircumcision or circumcision? Was it counted in uncircumcision or circumcision? It was not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. That's actually what the text says, okay? Abraham's righteousness was counted to him in uncircumcision. This, Paul, uh, this argument Paul makes returns us to the, to the thing that he's been building on, that faith is the thing that leads to our justification, and then our works, including the sacraments, the signs and seals, come in response to our justification. So here's the, the second point, if you were to have a second point on your handout. Here's very quickly the second point. One of the things that Paul's doing here is he's clarifying our misunderstandings about the sacraments, isn't he? Clarifying our misunderstandings about the sacraments. I believe, I truly believe, that as you look at Romans 4, 9 through 12, Paul's talking about circumcision, but you can broadly apply this argument to any of the sacraments. You could talk about baptism, you could talk about the Passover, you could talk about the Lord's Supper. The argument that Paul makes in Romans 4, 9 through 12 would cover all of those very well in that it not only clarifies our misunderstandings, but it tells us exactly what the sacraments are, Okay? And the one misunderstanding that Paul is dealing with, here's what it is, that the sacraments do anything to induce our favor with God, okay? The view that the sacraments, the signs and the seals that we apply, that they would do anything to induce favor with God is a, is a heretical teaching. It is wrong. That anything that we do, anything that is part of our works, any part of the things that we can administer, the acts that we can do, that they will do anything to make us more acceptable or more pleasing to God is incorrect, and Paul rejects that idea. Look at what he says in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, in verse 9, you first question you ought to ask is what blessing is he speaking about, right? He says, is this blessing counted? Is, it, is this blessing only for the circumcised? Look, it, it, it's connecting us immediately to verses 7 and 8. Remember 7 and 8 from last week? There David said, blessed is the man whom his sins are not counted against him, okay? To not, for God to not count our sins against him is synonymous with our salvation. He has declared us righteous, therefore our sins are not counted against us. So verse 9 begins, is this blessing, the blessing of being saved, the salvation that is ours, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. You see, Paul has been building this argument, and we can go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul said to us, the righteousness of Christ is the only thing necessary to induce favor with God. It is the very thing by which we are declared righteous before God, 
And the argument, very succinctly, let me put it like this. The argument that Paul's been making, let's not go back on this argument. Let's not undermine it. The argument he has been making is that there is never anything more or less that we can do to earn more or to take away from our favor with the living God. What Christ Jesus has done on the cross, he would say in chapter 3, verse 23, is the only thing necessary to justify us before the Father, and we will never have to do anything more, and there is never anything less to take away from that. For this is the only thing necessary that we may be justified before the Father. So anytime we take works or the sacrament and we move them on this side of the equation, anywhere we put them, in conjunction with our faith or beside our faith or after our faith or before our faith, any equation that does that, the Apostle Paul is, said, would say is a misunderstanding of the role of the sacraments in the life of the church. Let me give you two examples of that, kind of the, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, okay? Two examples of how the modern church misunderstands this, and then we'll finish up with our last point. First of all, I, I mentioned last week, uh, this is a common problem in Roman Catholicism, okay? Within the, the Roman Catholic Church, we talked about faith and works last week in the Roman Catholic Church, but essentially, uh, here's how um, the Roman Catholic Church views these things. The Roman Catholic Church would kind of put these things together. I told you last week, the Second Council of Trent speaks about faith and works, how these two things together work for our justification. And if you've ever wondered, if you've ever been in a Roman Catholic Church and you've wondered, uh, why do they have this kind of strange view of baptism? Right? We would call it a regenerative view of baptism. That is, when you're baptized, that does something towards your justification. It is part of the process of you being saved. So a child, when they are seven or eight days old, if they are at risk of dying, there's a fear within Roman Catholicism. They must be baptized if they are ultimately to be saved by God. That's because the sacraments have taken on a sort of uh, a dualistic view with faith. These two things together result in our justification. And that, that's, that's wrong. It's problematic, uh, the Apostle Paul would say, and uh, it's to the detriment of the church. Here's another example, okay? You can think of, if you're familiar with the, the men and the denominations who are involved with the federal vision movement, whether you think of Peter Lightheart or uh, uh, Doug Wilson, okay? Their views of baptism, they would say, are a little bit more modified, but essentially they would say this. They would say that the sacrament kind of sits over here. I wish I had a bigger whiteboard. Stick it right here. The sacrament sits over here, and their viewpoint would be that the sacrament initiates our favor with God. It initiates some grace from God, and then that is ultimately completed in our faith. And there's very different versions of that in those viewpoints, but all of them would say there is an objectivity to baptism that must be present if we're to have some sort of right standing with God, okay? And there are other viewpoints that would say it's the faith that begins and then it's the sacraments that complete our justification. Let me tell you something. Any view that sees the sacrament as inducing favor with God, as producing some sort of justification or some version of it or some satisfaction or some acceptance before God, it undermines the truth. It takes away from or detracts from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it ought to be rejected as heretical, okay? So we must beware of these things that are happening within the church. 
uh, we, might, we must be on guard for, for this is not what the Apostle Paul is putting forward as he speaks about the sacraments in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. So then let me ask you this. What is a sacrament? We've talked about circumcision from this passage. We can also rightly talk about baptism. What is a sacrament? Well, I will tell you, I think verse 11 11 really helps us. Verse 11, if you look at verse 11, it is the substance of the nature of a sacrament. And it says this, He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The Bible will use two words to describe all sacraments. It will speak of them in terms of a sign and a seal, okay? Uh, Over and over again, you can look at the Lord's Supper. You can look at Passover. You can look at circumcision. You can look at baptism. They're always described as signs and seals, okay? I was going to write the Greek, but I don't think it's relevant. You probably won't care what the Greek is. Uh, Greek sign is semeon. Uh, Greek for seal is a really tongue twister word. It is the word uh, sphrygdia, okay? Sphrygdia, uh, sign and seal. Let me tell you what each of those words mean and then apply it to the sacraments that we see in the Old and New Testament. The word sign is often used to describe the signs that God does among his people to authenticate his message and to distinguish or to set apart a person or a group of people. So I'll give you two examples of that. Jesus performs many signs and wonders. The signs and wonders of Christ are used to authenticate his message. So people say, oh, yeah, that man over there is different, okay? He appears to be sent from God, all right? It authenticates his message and it sets him apart or it distinguishes him, okay? So signs authenticate and they distinguish. You want more examples of that? Go back to the Old Testament. God calls Moses to appear before Pharaoh. He gives him many signs that are to authenticate Moses on behalf of the living God and to distinguish, to set apart the people of Israel. Essentially, that's what God is doing, isn't he? When he brings his people out of Egypt. So that's the function of a sign. A seal is slightly different. If you want to know what a seal is, you can think of, well, this is a very technical word. You can imagine you were writing a letter to a group of people during Paul's time, and you wouldn't have been able to stick it in an envelope and then to lick the edge of the envelope and to stick it down. That didn't exist yet, okay? So you would have taken your wax from your candle You would have poured it onto or dabbed it onto the edge of the letter. You would take your ring or your symbol or your sign and you would press it into the wax and that would be the sign of your authority, okay? And that is to say this letter is on behalf of Brian. This is Brian's letter. I own it. I vouch for it. It is mine, okay? That is the function of a seal. So a seal speaks more to the authority of the one who seals, okay? The authority of the one who seals. I'll give you an example of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2. The apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are the seal of my apostleship, okay? You Corinthians are the seal of my apostleship. You see what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if anybody's wondering who I am, 
Okay, they want to know, what's this guy Paul all about? You can go to the Corinthians, you can look at them, they are the mark of what I'm about. Okay, they are my, uh, my signet, they are my sign, they are the evidence, they are the visible illustration of the authority that I have as an apostle. Just go look at the Corinthian church and you will see who I am, okay? That's what a seal means. So let me tell you, you take those two ideas, you actually will begin to understand what's happening in Genesis 17 with circumcision. Here's how it goes, okay? Moses in Genesis 15 believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God initiates with Abram. Abram receives the gift of faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. 29 years later, God, or about, okay, God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, all right, I have made this covenant with you. Now, I want to give you a sign and a seal. And I want this sign and seal not only to be for you, but to be for your household. Now look at this, okay. You have had faith and you have believed in me. It's been considered righteousness or counted as righteousness. Now I want you to apply this very visible sign and seal. It will be a sign of authentication to distinguish you and your household from the peoples all around you. Okay? It will be to set you apart, to make you different. That when people look at you, they say, oh, look at Abraham and his family. They must be different. They're not like the Hittites and the Amalekites. All right? They're not like the peoples that live around them. They are different. And it will be a seal of my authority. So not only are you a different people, but it will tell everyone around you that you are owned by me. That I am your God. Not just anyone, but me. I am your God. It will function as a sign and a seal for you. You can see then why it was not just a sign for Abram, but for his household. Because they, some of them might not have had faith. They were very young, children, eight days old, you know, whatever. They hadn't had faith and been justified by God. Of course not. But the sign and seal was to function to distinguish them from the world and to give a sense of authority that they've been stamped by the living God. They were his. Okay? This is the function of the sign and the seal of circumcision in the Old Testament. That, that Abraham was justified by faith and then he received this sign. This is the implication as we continue reading about the sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham. Now let me tell you something. This is where I think the signs of the New Testament come into play. Many people will ask the question, okay, if this is what baptism is, if baptism essentially is doing the same function, then why do we get to the New Testament and have a new sign? If all the stuff that was happening in the Old Testament was good enough, why don't we just have one sign? Why has it been changed? Well, let me tell you something. The signs of the New Testament are infinitely better than the signs of the Old Testament. Aren't they? Right? I mean, the beauty of this is, here's what happens. Jesus Christ comes and everything about him is better. He's a better Adam. He's a better sacrificial lamb. He's a better high priest, right? Better fill in the blank. You could talk about Christ Jesus. He's the better version of that. And what happens in the New Testament is we are given better signs. The Lord's Supper is a better sign than the Passover, isn't it? Because you can sacrifice lambs all day long and put their blood on your doorposts, but you still might be wondering, well, how in the world is this going to work? How will the blood of a lamb do anything for me? And you're right, but the Lord's Supper is a better sign. Baptism is an infinitely better sign than circumcision, okay, for so many reasons. And I'll give you one. 
Although God said in Genesis 17, this sign is for you and your household, let me tell you something. It's not really for the whole household, right? I mean, the girls, they get left out, don't they? They don't get a sign. They get like, you are a part of the people of God by proximity. You can rub shoulders with your brothers, and it's not exactly like that, okay? But there's no sign for them. Sign gets for the boys, and and the boys get the sign, and the girls are just kind of there. But the sign that is given in the New Testament is infinitely better because it includes both male and female, right? There's now no slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, but one in Christ Jesus. The signs we're given in the New Testament are infinitely better. And this is the role of baptism in the New Testament, okay? Don't have the time to go through all of the mentions of, of baptism in the New Testament scriptures, but essentially, let me just kind of conclude with this. Here's what I believe happens in the New Testament. Here's what I believe happens after Christ Jesus comes. We're given a new sign, and that's the sign of baptism. It will be described again and again as a sign and a seal, a sign and a seal, an authentication that you've been distinguished from the world among you, that, the, that you've been sealed by an authority that the Lord God is your God, and you've been set apart. Okay, and essentially, again, what is happening in the New Testament is that God has said this, I am going to save you, okay, and I'm going to miraculously save you by giving you the gift of faith. I give you faith, and that through the vehicle of faith, you are going to be counted as righteous. You are going to be declared holy and righteous without blemish because of the work of Christ Jesus, that by the grace of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, by the vehicle of faith, you will be declared right before me. And then what that does is that begins a work within us. The Spirit of God comes to us. Jesus goes away and he says, I'm sending you my helper. And the the helper of God comes and he indwells us and then he begins to work so that it's not simply the power of death at work in our hearts, but it's the power of life for the Spirit of God. That through faith, being justified, then our hearts are being moved to want to glorify God by our work, right? So our works are not the thing that compels God to love us, but they are the product of our faith and justification that the Spirit of God now is at work within us, and we want to work for Him. And so our good works and our obedience to the law and the things that we do and the ways that we love our neighbors, all of this is a product. It is, it is what is produced by the Spirit who is at work within us out of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so now the sacrament functions in very much the same way. We baptize. We baptize out of obedience because we see the sign not as the thing that induces the favor of God, but the thing that we've been commanded to do as an outward sign and a seal of an invisible truth that we are set apart among the peoples, that God is our God and we are his people, and now we are distinguishing that for the whole world to see. That's what's happening with the waters of baptism. Parents have believed by faith. They are coming before a congregation and they are presenting their children to be baptized with the water of baptism for everyone to see, for God to look and say, well, look, that's my people. For the children to be reminded as they grow older, for the parents who have had faith to say, well, we're presenting our household to the Lord God uh, to be set apart. For the world, right? If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, for you to be like, well, there's something different about those people. They just got water poured on their head. That's pretty strange, right? It's strange when you look at it apart from the covenant. 
That's what's happening in the waters of baptism. That is the sign and the seal that we've been given. These signs as a response to our saving are displayed on all believers and on their household as evidence that we are different than the world around us. They are a seal. They are an emblem. They are a stamp that says these people, they are the people of God. We are his. It is just a small, simple picture of the grace of God to us in his son, Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the function of the sacraments in the New and the Old Testament. Now listen, I, I know you may disagree with me. I hope that we can have grace with one another, seeing at least what the biblical precedent is for the sacraments that we practice in the church day in and day out. If you have questions, I'd love to talk afterwards. I believe this, though, is the sign and the seal given to the church for believers and their households that we belong to the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, come before you this morning and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have been justified by faith, that we have been reconciled to you by the blood of Christ, that we have adoption as sons and daughters, and that now you have set us apart. I pray, Lord God, that we would in all of the essentials, including uh, you, Lord Jesus, and our faith in you, and the, and the blood of Christ which covers us, that we would have great agreement, that we would not have confusion, that there would be no question, that there is no work that justifies us before you, and no combination of work and faith, but it is simply by your grace, through the cross of Christ, received by faith, that we are justified. And that, Lord, in the things that we would consider non-essential, that we would see them as important, that we would discuss them, that we would converse about them, that we would look to the Scriptures, Lord God, that your Spirit would give us charity with one another, and that we would seek to glorify you in our understanding of these things, including the sacraments. Would you, Lord God, continue to work among this group of people, that we would love one another? that we would encourage one another, that we would not be satisfied with easy answers, that your spirit would lead us through your word, and that we, Lord God, would glorify you in all that we say and do. We thank you that our works are not the thing that justifies us, but they are the great product of, they are the result of the work that you have done in us and the work that you are now doing in us. I pray, Lord God, every day, that our works, our actions, and our words would glorify you in everything we say and do. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.